always good to be here. Uh, this is always a privilege, it's always a blessing to come into the house of the Lord, but it's always uh, even more special when it's the house that you grew up in, so to speak. And uh, I always come here and just memories just flood my mind of just uh, growing up in this church. And so it's just uh, kind of surreal that I get to come in here and preach uh, whenever we are up this way. Uh, it is a blessing to be here. We made it and we are not wet, uh, even though it might be wet outside. So I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see your faces tonight. Um, we are doing well in uh, South Florida. Uh, the Lord has been really gracious to us this year. Um, my, my dad was able to preach my ordination service in February, and that was just a really, really special time. And uh, I am very thankful uh, for what God has allowed us to do in the church that we're at. We're at a church called Grace Baptist Church in Southwest Ranches, Florida. And uh, God is just uh, being able to, he, he's growing me and Natalie a lot. Uh, I'm learning a lot about being a pastor uh, full-time and all those things that go involved with that. And uh, I'm learning a lot, and, uh, but I'm just learning above everything else that God is an eternally gracious God, and I could not do it without his grace every single day. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10 tonight. Um, the Bible that you hold in your hands uh, is both, we have to see this, it's both a historical book, but it is also a revelatory book. In the sense that, yes, it is talking about real people and real things and real events that has happened, but it also is revelatory in the sense that your Bible tells one story throughout its whole narrative, and as the narrative of, of Jesus Christ, your deliverer. That's the story it's telling. But yes, it is also a historical book. We have to remember that. I think sometimes we can see all these dates and these names and these places and these people that are going up to this place and they're buying this thing or whatever. And we can get lost in the minutiae. We can get lost in the data. And we forget that these were real people. You know, sometimes the skeptics will say that this book that you hold in your hands is nothing but a, you know, like a divine, not even divine, just a collection of Aesop's fables or something. It's, it's myths, it's legends, it's stories. They're really good stories, really good literature. But we know that it is the truth. We know that it is the truth of the Word of God. But yes, again, amongst that truth, I think we forget that these people, these people with weird names, are often people that were real. They were real people. They had bad days. They had good days. They had really brilliant days. They had really befuddling days. They had hopes and they had dreams. These were real people. They were living, breathing people that walked this earth thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. You know, um, it's easy to read history and get lost in that data, but we have to remember that history is full of personalities. And I want to, you to kind of see this here tonight. You know, uh, uh, first of all, though, a few years ago, um, some archaeologists, they discovered remains in the Red Sea, Egyptian remains. Now, that should immediately make you perk up and remember Exodus chapter 13. And actually, I want you to go there really quickly because there's this awesome quote by one of these archaeologists that I want you to feel the weight of. But in Exodus 14, in 13 and 14, of course, we have that story of the crossing of the Red Sea. The, uh, the Israelites are making their exodus out of Egypt, led by Moses, and they're at the Red Sea, and they are again, uh, questioning God, what would be the first of many times they would. And look at verse 21 of Exodus 14. I love this. It says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land. That's important. And the waters were divided. 
And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. Notice that again. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the, the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then jump down to verse 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea and the waters, that, excuse me, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. This is a miraculous story, an amazing story in the, uh, in your, the account of the Bible. But it was, it was incredible to read this account of these archaeologists uncovering remains of thousands of bodies and skeletal remains and chariots and artifacts and whatnot. Um, but what was most telling is one of the archaeologists, he said this, listen, he said, The ancient soldiers, these Egyptians, seemed to have died on dry ground. Hmm. The positions of the bodies and the fact that they were stuck in a vast quantity of clay and rock imply that they could have died in a mudslide or a tidal wave. And we should all be nodding, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> of course, that's right. And I, it, These stories are kind of cool, right? They, they add weight to what we read in the Bible. They bring historical weight to what we read when we read our scriptures. But... I have two conflicting emotions when I read stories like these. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Number one, I'm intrigued by the historical value of uncovering ancient artifacts. Yes, that, that interests me. The, the fact that we can still find uh, remains and artifacts and all those types of things from centuries gone by, millennia gone by, is something that is interesting to me. But on the other hand... I'm also a little bit saddened by the attention that these stories get. And I say that because it's, it's so easy for Christians to gobble up like piranhas these types of stories. As if they didn't believe their Bible before, but now that we have the story, aha, see, I told you, we were right all along. <laughs> It's just like how sometimes, you know, uh, Christians, we, we, we like to gobble up the celebrities that name Christ you know, Chris Pratt, he mentions Jesus Christ in his acceptance speech, and Christians everywhere are like, see, look at, we're cool, look at us. Or Justin Bieber starts singing worship songs, and we're like, look at how relevant we are. That's awesome. We, we like to gobble up these things to make us feel relevant, to make us feel like we matter. And we're attracted to stories like this, because again, we can say, look, I told you, we were right. But, <laughs> the Bible was right even if they didn't find the remains in the Red Sea. The Bible is true in and of itself. It doesn't defend its veracity. It's its own representative in a court of law. The Bible is its own truth, and it assumes its authority. It doesn't go around trying to defend its authorial claims. God's authority and sovereignty isn't proven by verified history. History verifies God, not the other way around. These stories in your, in your Bible that you hold, these historical accounts, are weighty and important because God is God, not because they find the remains of some ancient artifact. It's because God is Jehovah, 
And what I want you to see tonight is this, in a nutshell, is that God has called you not to be archaeologists. God has called you to be ambassadors. And there's a big difference between the two. And that's how we should approach the Bible. Not trying to look for ways and evidences and proofs that authenticate its truth. We are just proclaiming its truth. That's our mission. That's our job. And we shouldn't need these artifacts. We shouldn't need these signs to sort of say, uh, see, that's true. Aha, see, now I can get behind this message. You know, by doing that, I think we often prove that we're like uh, the Pharisees in Mark 8. Flip to Mark 8, because this is a really fascinating account. We prove just how much we are like these Pharisees when we are clamoring and, and clawing after these sort of historical accounts that seem to, quote-unquote, prove Scripture. Mark 8, what a fascinating chapter. At the beginning, in, in Mark 8, verses 1 through uh, 10 or so, we have the account of Jesus feeding the 4,000. Now, he is already, in, in, Mark's account of the, in, the, in Mark's gospel, we've already had the scene of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That was back in Mark 6, I believe. And Jesus walking on the water. And now he's feeding 4,000. And look at, uh, look, look at verse 8. Mark 8, verse 8, So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. Again, there was leftovers. <laughs> and they had eaten, were about 4,000. And he sent them away. And straightway he, that is Jesus, entered in a ship with his disciples and came into, unto the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven. <laughs> I just have to stop and laugh at that because he fed 4,000 people. And what are they doing? Jesus, give us a sign that you are the Messiah. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of irony there. And I love this next phrase, especially in the King James, where it says, <laughs> and Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> I think that's Jesus being like, oh, gosh. <laughs> He's frustrated. <laughs> he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he ends up going into a boat and going across the sea. And the rest of Mark 8 is fantastic. But I think we are often like those Pharisees. We have God's word in front of us. And yet we are still clamoring and saying to God, Lord, give us a sign. And we will get behind your mission. And that leads me to say this, that the way that we defend the Bible reveals the way that we view the Bible and its author. Are you going out and searching for proofs and evidences before you get behind this message? Or are you taking this message and that's all you need? Because it should be all you need. And that brings me to what I want to talk about tonight especially, which is Joshua chapter 10. You can flip back there. I want to talk to you tonight about the day unlike any other day. And that is what we see here in the first couple, well, the first uh, basic half of chapter 10 of Joshua. This is another miraculous story, another miracle account in the narrative of of Scripture, which demonstrates God's all-sufficiency and all-sovereignty. We're just going to kind of read through the first uh, half of Mark, or excuse me, John, uh, Joshua 10. I'll be making kind of comments as we go. So look at verse 1. Of Joshua 10, where it says, Now it came to pass when King Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai, 
and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. So what we have here, what's happening, Joshua and Israel go and they take Ai. They have just taken Jericho, and they go and they capture Ai. This Adonai Zedek, he gets, starts to get a little bit nervous. He starts to squirm in his britches because he sees that not only have they taken Ai, but this other massive city called Gibeon, where it says, you know, it's one of the royal cities. That means it was a recognized power in the day. They were a recognized city of strength and might. As it says in the end of verse 2, that all the men of Gibeon, they were mighty men. They were warriors. That city made peace with the, the, the nation that just conquered Jericho and Ai. So this guy, this Adonai, he starts to get a little nervous. He starts to get a little bit nervous, and he starts to feel like there's a target on his back. So what does he do? Look at verse 3. Wherefore Adonai Zeta, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon. For it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So he starts to get nervous to the point where, okay, guys, let's come together. Let's form an axis. We need to do something about this whole Gibeon and Israel thing that they're coming together. We need to, let's make a first strike. We need to strike them first. Strike the first blow. Come together. They form this sort of Amorite axis of powers. And then verse 5, therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up. They and all their hosts and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So they go up and they start to siege Gibeon. No doubt by surrounding the city and starting, trying to starve them out of the city and to surrender. But they begin their siege of Gibeon. And look what happens, verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua, they send messengers unto Joshua in his camp, to Gilgal, saying, Slack not, do not delay thy hand from thy servants, but come up to us quickly, and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Joshua is notified by this new allied city that, hey, they need help. Something is going down at Gibeon. We need to go help them out. And so he and Joshua and his mighty men, his mighty men of valor, as it says in verse 7, they go up to, Gil, excuse me, to Gibeon and they lend their aid to them. Now, I want you, we're just going to kind of skip over verse 8, but I want you to remember it. And it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand, and there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Just keep that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it later. But verse 9 and 10 are important. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. So what happens is Joshua gets this message. He and all his men, they are like, immediately, let's go. 
They marched, as it says, all through the night, 15 miles, that is, uphill from Gilgal to Gibeon. And they marched all the way, all through the night, and they come upon the Amorites, uh, as it says there in verse 6, they come, or excuse me, verse uh, 10, or no, it's, sorry, it's verse 9, they come up to them suddenly. They catch them off guard. They catch them by surprise. And I love how it says, also in verse 10, how it says, and the Lord discomfited them. <laughs> that means it, the Lord embarrassed them. The Lord confused them. And he confused the Amorites by an army that had been marching all night long. <laughs> you think that's not a miracle of God? That Yes, it is. But I love verse 10. Because look again at who's doing the action in verse 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel. And the Lord slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And the Lord chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon. And the Lord smote them to Ezekah and unto Makeda. The Lord is doing this action. It's not necessarily Israelites. It's the Lord through them. And that's why we have this awesome verse in verse 11. Look. Because they start to run away. These Amorites, they start to flee because they're embarrassed. And look what it says in verse 11. And it came to pass... As they fled from before Israel and were in the, in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiah, and they died. This is an awesome phrase. <laughs> they were more which died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. <laughs> God got this victory. Folks, it wasn't the Israelites. It wasn't because they had been doing their CrossFit and had awesome endurance and they were able to go all through the night and now they have their sword and they're ready to embarrass the Amorites. No, God got this victory, folks. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who slew their enemies. He always gets the victory and He always gets the credit. The hail was stronger than the sword. God's Word is mightier than human weaponry. That's what we have to see here. In verses 12 through 14, we see that Joshua sees these fleeing armies. And he remembers God's promise from verse 8 that they would be delivered into his hands. And so look what happens. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Think about that. Joshua sees these armies going away, and he remembers God's promise that they were going to be delivered into his hands. And so he says, Lord, make the sun stand still till we can overcome them. And guess what? The sun stands still. What a bold request by Joshua. You know, skeptics again, they will like to explain this event through scientific phenomena or whatever. I tend to believe that this is really what happened. (laughs) That the sun literally stood still. Who's to say, who are we to question that the creator of the stars can control them and stop them in their tracks too? I think he did. He stopped them right in their tracks. In verses 15 through 27, we can see that the time froze until they had defeated all of their enemies. In verses 16 through 18, we, we can just kind of 
bounce over these, that, that Israel finds these five kings and they're hiding in this cave and they surround them. And then in verses 19 through 21, Israel's enemies uh, get pursued. The rest of the armies, they start fleeing. Look at verse 19. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp, to Joshua and Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. This was a warning. It was a, a warning to show not just the might of Israel, but the might of Israel's God. That look at what God is on their side. <laughs> No one dared to threaten them. No one dared to move his tongue against any of the people of Israel. That's a fascinating phrase. In the verses 22 through 27, they go back to the scene where these five kings are surrounded in this cave. They're holed up in that cave, and I'll just read those verses quickly. Verse 22, then just said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage for you. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them, and hanged them upon five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. I find it interesting that in the midst of Joshua executing these kings, I love verse 25. These guys, these captains, these war captains, have their feet on these guys' necks, and he breaks them. He says, hold up, don't execute them. Fear not, and do not be dismayed. I imagine the guys on the ground are like, what are you talking about? But he was talking to his war captains, of course. But I love this passage. It is an interesting story, is it not? It shows, obviously, the might of the Lord that is on the side of Israel. That he is not stayed by human time. He can actually stop time to make his plans come about. And not only that, but he listens to the voice of man. I think that's an incredible miracle. But it would be really cool, right? It would be so awesome if proof existed of this story. Because this is a really miraculous story. I'm, I'm sure the skeptics have done their parsing of it, and they can try and decipher it in a lot of ways, and they can try and say, they can explain the science behind the sun standing still, whatever. But it would be really cool if there existed something that we could be like, see, I told you. <laughs> but actually, did you miss it? Because there was. Look at verse 13. Look at, look at that question. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? Hmm, that's interesting. This book of Jasher. And I've done some reading on this because I found it so interesting that he mentions an extra biblical source. 
in this account. And it's actually mentioned again in 2 Samuel chapter 1 in verse 18. You can look up that verse there. Um, but basically, what I've come to find is that this book of Jasher is basically a, 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 is, is called a book of the upright, is basically what it is. And it's actually sort of like a catalog of heroes. So it's like a, a Hebrew heroes book that they would pass down to their kids and be like, look at this story that this happened. And look at the amazing thing this guy did. You have to remember these upright men, these heroes. That's what this book of Jasher was. It was poems and stories honoring these heroes. And it is believed, it is believed that this book existed until the great fire at the Library of Alexandria. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> That, that that event in history removed the proof of this book. Now, why do I think that's interesting? Because do we need evidence to bolster our faith in this book? Do we need that book of Jasher to see that, see, this is true. It really stopped the sun. This guy, Joshua, he, he's prayed to God and the whole time of earth and space, slowed down to a halt. Do we need evidence to believe that, or do we believe that? Do you trust God's word or the evidence for God's word? And that's what I mean. Are you an archaeologist, or are you an ambassador for truth? Are you looking for proofs of it, or are you saying, I believe it with all of my gut? Because again, folks, we are not archaeologists. We are ambassadors, as it says in Corinthians, and we don't have to prove that the Bible is true. We proclaim it is true, that Jesus saves sinners. That is what we proclaim. That is what we believe. We ought to take God's word like children, I believe. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18 really quickly. I want you to see this too, because I love this little passage. Matthew 18 the disciples, they're always bumbling about. They're always trying to decide who's the greatest. God is doing miracles, and they're like, Jesus, who's the greatest? <laughs> and they come up to him and ask him that again. Look at Matthew 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I imagine Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit there again <laughs> at this question. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think that is the model of how we are to approach reading the word of God. And what do I mean by that? We should be just gullible enough like little children to believe in the impossible. Just like little children. You can get them to believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. We ought to believe that God can stop the sun. If he so wishes. That God can, guess what? He can save sinners by his own choosing. <laughs> Without any sense of their righteousness at all. We should be able to believe the impossible. Yes, be the impossibility. Of because that's where we find our greatest comfort. That the creator of the world, the creator of the suns and the stars and the moons and all the planets and all the galaxies and all the potential universes, whatever, that same creator, he condescends to his creatures on this puny little planet called Earth and he gives them the impossible. He gives them his righteousness by which they are saved. That's what we believe. That's what we are proclaiming. 
And this same God who, yes, this same God who created the stars and stopped them in their place, this same God is your Father. As it says in Romans 8, where you can cry unto Him, Abba, Father. And this same God, He is on your side. As a, if, you, if you're in Joshua 10 again, you can look at verse 14 because I love this, this promise where it says, yes, it's to Israel, but yes, it's for you too, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. Guess what? He fights for you too. He is constantly making intercession for you in heaven. And this same God guarantees victory for you. Remember I said to go back to verse 8 or remember verse 8. We'll go back to it again. This is a fantastic verse. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand, and there shall not a man of them stand before thee. God promises complete victory before they have even lifted a finger to fight. (laughs) I have already delivered them. I have already defeated them. I have already slayed all of your enemies before your hands. You don't have to worry about anything. Hey, guess what? I have already provided for you the righteousness upon which you need to stand. That's God's promise to you. You, Christian, you are fighting from a stance of victory assured, not victory that you have to be, has to be attained. You fight from victory, not for victory. That changes the Christian life, people. Because just as God predetermines and promises victory for Israel, you live a life of from victory. You know the story. You know the ending. Jesus won. That changes what you're living for. You're not trying to fight for something. You already have it. You just get to live in light of the victory that Jesus has given you. And that's the promise of the gospel because it assures us that we can never really lose because Christ already won. So guess what? And this is the Bible. You can be happy losers. (laughs) Actually, that's Spurgeon. Listen, I love this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon had a way with words, obviously. But Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from London, listen to what he says. He says, Oh, we may never hesitate to be losers for Jesus. <laughs> they who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ. And I would say amen to that because we can never have to fear what we might lose because we are never truly losers if we have Jesus on our side. The same God that is on your side, that promises you victory, that is in your corner, that stops the stars in your place. This God controls everything, and there is nothing too small or too great for him to intervene. You know, a a couple uh, uh, weeks ago, actually it was right after we moved into our house. Some of you, if you're on social media or whatever, you may have saw it. We, We lost our dog, Chloe, for nine days. We had just moved in, and she escaped. And uh, it was, you know, it's not, it's a small thing, right? It's, it's, it's a pet, it's a dog, but I can't tell you how tore up I was. Because <laughs> obviously, we've had Chloe ever since we got, Natalie and I were married, she's been a part of our family, and I just remember, I, I've cried out to God, but I remember crying out to God, searching for that little stupid puppy. I wanted her to come home. And I remember thinking, That the same God who controls the universe, he condescends to my little minute prayer of praying for my lost puppy. 
That should cause us to be amazed. Because there's nothing too small or too great for God to intervene. He hears those small cries for our dogs to come home. And he hears our great cries that he would save and deliver our our loved ones from cancer. He hears both. And he responds to both in grace. The same God is your God through everything in this life. He, he has a power that makes your chaos no match for him. Your chaos is nothing to him. I want you to see this verse. Jer- look at, I'll just read it. Jeremiah 32 and 27 says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? <laughs> no. He can stop the sun in his tracks. And I don't believe that because I read it in the book of Jasher. I believe that because God said it. So yes, he can stop the sun in his place. And he can deliver me from my sins. And he can help me rescue my lost dog. That's the immensity of the God that we serve. Dealing with those mighty things and those little minute things. And he deals with them all the same. In his boundless grace for us. What a God that we serve. There's nothing too hard. There's actually, in fact, He masters in the impossible. Did you know that when you come to your extremist limits, that's God's place for where He works. Man's, it has been said, I don't know who said this, man's extremities are God's opportunities. So when you come to the very end of your rope and you, I can't do anything else, God, I can't do anything else. And he's saying, yes, let me do it. (laughs) God's office is at the end of your rope. When you're at your wit's end and you feel like nothing else is going to deliver you, he says, that's right, I'm the deliverer. There's no difficulty in his way. John Calvin said this, there's no difficulty in God's way. God can surmount any and all obstacles without any labor. (laughs) Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing is too impossible for God. He masters in the impossible. And we believe this, not because we have historical evidence, not because we have something that we can bank ourselves on, but because God's Word is enough. God's covenant is enough. All the evidence that you will ever need for is right in front of you, folks. It's in That's all the evidence you'll ever need that God exists and that God is true and that God has promised to save you from your sins. It's right here in this book. I, I, I hate to keep quoting Spurgeon, but I was reminded of this as I was, as I was praying tonight that Spurgeon also said, He said, visit lots of books, but live in the Bible. I have to tell myself this often because I get this from my dad. I read a lot of books. I think I'm reading like nine or something, which is very, very, very inefficient. Do not copy that practice. But am I living in the Bible? Or am I living in those other books? Those other books are great. They're awesome. But am I making this word of God my meat and my sustenance? We don't need another miracle, folks. We don't need another sign. We don't need something else. We have a miracle right in front of us. It's this book, a book straight from heaven. It's the scripture. It's the Lord's love letter to us. That's our chiefest comfort, that God has provided us all the miracles we could ever need right in front of us in a book that we can open on our iPhones at any time we want. 
That's the glory of God. It isn't found in the miracles, but it's found in His mercy that comes down to us. Minute creatures that we are. This God of miracles, He chooses to shower us in every single second of every single day. That's our source of confidence. So as ambassadors, we have to ask, us, ask ourselves the question, are we confident in the proof of, of, of the message, or are we confident in the person of the message? Because one will operate as an archaeologist, always looking for things that can verify their uh, beliefs. And one operates as an ambassador that just says, you have said it. I believe it. God, use me. Where's your confidence? Is it in something else other than the Bible, or is it in the Bible alone? The God of the Word alone. Let's pray.